Great to see you this Sunday morning after the Rams won last night. Yeah. A couple of things before we jump in. One, if you'd like to read ahead and join us Wednesday night, we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 13. And we made mention on Wednesday how amazing it is, the parallels between what we're looking at in 1 Samuel and the things we're visiting in the book of Acts. And uh, God is on the throne and in control of all things. Amen. And secondly, it's kind of interesting. I mentioned this some time ago, and I wanted to bring it to your attention again and give you a little bit further detail. Uh, we had a wonderful time at Proximity, and it's just been amazing to see the response. There's been over 200,000 views on YouTube of the assorted different messages. I got some clarity from his channel regarding the uh, numbers that they gave me uh, a week ago or the, a couple days after the conference. That uh, normally when I get a report as to how many people are on his channel, it's the number of page views. But these were actually people who clicked on to watch the conference, and the number was over 750,000 people. So a lot of people watching, a lot of people had the opportunity to be informed. And that brings me to what I wanted to share with you. There's a lot of places around the world where there aren't opportunities to hear things like we we're so blessed with that proximity. There are lots of places around the world where the churches are all small. Uh, places in Europe where the average size of a church is 25 people. And there's not many of them in any given city. And I shared some time ago that Amir Sarfati has a burden for these areas. And what he has begun to do is to respond to these churches' invitations. When a group of small churches will get together and invite him to come and speak, that he will go, but Behold Israel Ministries will support his travels and expenses 100% to put no burden on these small churches. Now, he's asked me to join him. And so we're going to be doing just that. And our board got together and we met on this issue. We feel like it is something God would have me to participate in and therefore we to participate in as a body. And we're going to be doing a series of awaiting his return conferences in these areas where the churches are small, the number of believers are small, and we wanted to throw it out there. And by the way, we're going to be doing what we did at Proximity up in Toronto, Canada on May 11th. Jan will be there, Jack will be there, Amir and I will be there, but that's not one of the things we're talking about here at this moment. We're also going to be going to places that uh, the church doesn't have a huge impact, places like Australia and New Zealand, where the presence in an average church is small, as I mentioned a moment ago, off into the Netherlands. I told you about Amir being in Slovenia, preaching at churches there. The whole country's population is 2 million. The number of Christians in the whole country is 800. So obviously churches of that size are not able to support an event like this. So if you would like to join us in uh, supporting this financially, you can just write awaiting his return on the memo section or just AHR, and it will go directly to supporting both the travel expenses and hotel and all that stuff uh, associated with that. We are not asking anything from any of the inviting churches. There'll be no donation made to Behold Israel or Calvary Chapel Tustin. The two of our ministries uh, will support this effort 100%. So people are cause-oriented today, so I just wanted to throw that out there to you if you're interested in being a part of World Missions in that way. So I just have an announcement before we dig in this morning. For those of you who are perfect, you're going to have to bear with the rest of us during this message this morning because we need to hear it. Amen. Amen. So would you open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 15? Acts 15, we'll finally finish off this chapter looking at verses 30 through 41. Now, last time we noted that because certain men came down from Judea with a message that conflicted with the apostles' doctrine, where they stated that unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. We're told in Acts 15, 2, that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. Now, we studied further in our chapter where the two or the pair, Paul and Barnabas, went down to Jerusalem to confer with the Jerusalem council, the apostles and the elders or how uh, they are named for us. And when they arrived in Jerusalem to discuss this issue that certain men from Judea introduced into the thinking of the Gentile church, they were met there with a group of former Pharisees who said, you know what, those guys are right, the certain men are right. 
But not only do the Gentiles need to be circumcised, they need to, need to observe the law of Moses. And in essence, what they were saying was, Gentiles must become Jews in order to become Christians. And we know that that certainly is not true. And therefore, Peter contended with these men, asking them the question, why do you put a burden on the Gentiles that not even the Jews could keep? And therefore, he closed his comments with this particular statement in Acts 15, 11, But we believe, Peter speaking to this group of Pharisees, that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, the Jews, shall be saved in the same manner as they, speaking of the Gentiles. Now, after Peter spoke, Paul and Barnabas actually silenced the crowd by declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And that was followed by the church at the highest level standing against this errant doctrine. Now, the consensus of the group was to send a letter to the church at Antioch where this doctrinal error was born. And a contingent of representatives from Jerusalem was to go. And they were to deliver this letter and verbally verify both the source of the letter and its content. Now, our text records for us today the delivery of that letter and the reception it received when read to those assembled there. Now, our text is also going to record for us an incident that has led to some rather interesting comments among scholars and biblical commentators. And I do have to say, in all my years of studying the Bible, I've never run across a text where there were so many insertions of opinions that couldn't be backed up with biblical evidence by those who were writing commentaries on the passage. Now, what we can recognize before we discuss some of the practice called eisegesis, which is, in essence, inserting one's own interpretation or presupposition or even biases into a text, the practice is commonly known as reading into the text, implying something that's not actually there. It is true that while doctrinal division was unsuccessful in its efforts to infiltrate the church, What we're going to see today is that two great men of God had a dispute that became so sharp, it came to causing them to go their separate ways. Now, we know that Romans 8.28 says, and we know that most things work together for good, the rest will be a mess. Is that what it says? No, all things work together for good to those who love God, uh, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, personally, my interpretation is that all things means all things. Now, the issue we're going to deal with this morning in a portion of our time is the separation of the missionary team of Paul and Barnabas. Now, as I said, the commentators are all over the map on this, but I don't see the issue being quite so confusing or complex. But we do need to ask some questions as we move into our text and time. Was the missionary team split of the devil? Was it rooted in pride? Was one of these men right and the other wrong? Or were they both wrong and neither handled it right? Or was this possibly among the all things that worked together for good that Paul would later write of to the Romans? Now, we're going to deal with these questions, and thank you for asking them, by the way. And we note earlier in Acts, we had a message titled, Rightly Dividing. And the context of that message was doctrinally, when we are to separate from certain teachings and how to identify them. But the question is, what about personally? Can two people who love God have a contention that grows so strong between them that they part ways, yet they're still used by God and not dishonor him or disobey his directive to love one another as Christ loves us. Well, the question is simply this in our time and topic this morning. Can two Christians be, and here's our title, altogether separate? Can two Christians be altogether separate? Now, this is obviously an oxymoronic adage that we're all familiar with. We've heard it, said it ourselves. That's an altogether separate matter. And it just happens to be, in my mind, 
the name of the greatest Christian band that ever was. And if you've ever heard our radio program, though it's not on uh, here in California, it's on in various parts of the country all the way up into Alaska. The name of our radio program is The Truth About God. And it came from a band who had a song named The Truth About God. The name of the band was Altogether Separate. Now, I introduced that to you for this reason. Altogether Separate has gone their separate ways. And though they are obviously still part of the body of Christ, one of the guys is now the lead guitar player for Switchfoot. Another is the creative director for uh, their church. Another is a sheriff's deputy in Colorado. And still another is the worship leader at his church. The four guys that made up all altogether separate have altogether separated. But they're altogether part of the body of Christ. They're still serving their King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So though they were once together, they are now separate. Can this be possible with Paul and Barnabas too? Could their separation actually have been of the Lord? Could it be part of all things working together for the good of them both? Well, we're going to establish some criteria and dealing with some very practical things when Christian Brothers and sisters, bump heads or rub each other the wrong way. We're going to learn what to do this morning. Now, this is obviously something for you to pass along to other people since we never have that problem here. Oh, I didn't get any amens there. Now, listen this morning. It is possible to be all together, part of the one body, and yet minister separately. So let's learn how to do this and how to understand it from Acts 15, 30 to 41. And would you stand and read our text with me, please? Acts chapter 15. Let's pick it up in 30 and read down to the end of the chapter. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement Now Judas and Silas themselves, also being prophets, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And Lord, that's our petition of you this morning, that you would strengthen us as members of your global church and members of CCT here. God, we ask that you would help us to deal better with the things that are a natural part of any assembly of people. And Lord, help us to learn and glean from these texts and most importantly, apply it to our lives when we will encounter those rough spots between believers that are inevitably going to happen in any given church at any given time. And we say to that even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Now, our first consideration and criteria, so to speak, to consider is going to come from verses 30 to 35, where we see the letter that was written in Jerusalem under the council's uh, headship, so to speak, its arrival in Antioch and the reception that it had when it was read. Now, we're told when the people assembled, assembled together, they rejoiced because of the encouragement They had received. Now, this isn't some just happy, clappy response to the council writing something they wanted to hear. And we have a lot of people today who want to go to church and hear things that make them feel better about themselves. And this isn't what took place. This wasn't the context of the letter. Now, the word encouragement in verse 31 and the word exhortation in verse 32 both come from the same root Greek word, parakaleo. And it simply means to call near to instruct. It can also mean to comfort. It can also be translated as to console. And remember what this was all about. 
You have a group of Gentiles who were told by Jews with far greater religious upbringing and experience that they weren't really saved. And therefore, this letter that they received refuted that teaching and therefore was a comfort to the Gentiles. And the instruction they received consoled those who heard it and therefore they rejoiced. Now, then we're told of a pair named Judas and Silas. We're told that they were prophets. They had the ability to speak by the inspiration of God. Now, they continued to the to uh, instruct the people. And this led to doubts and despair being turned into strength and confidence, which is evidenced by the fact that they sent the delivery team of the letter back to Jerusalem with their greetings, greetings from the brethren to the apostles. Now, then we're introduced to a rather interesting phrase. We're told it seemed good to Silas. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, and it seemed good to Silas to stay there too, preaching the word alongside those from Antioch who were trying to reach their city with the gospel, who had been saved under the teaching of Paul and Barnabas, or preaching of Paul and Barnabas. Now, we need to highlight this phrase for just a moment. We find it in Luke 1, 1 to 4, where Luke says this as he introduces his gospel record. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all the things from the very first. Remember, the word perfect means complete. He understood completely the things that had been shared with him. To write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now, Luke said it seemed good to him. It seemed like a good idea that he should write a narrative of the things that he had seen fulfilled and about the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And he gave us a near exhaustive record of those things. Now in three, uh, Acts 15, three times we find that phrase, it seemed good. Now within those three statements, we find in verse 28, this usage of the phrase, for it seemed good to the who? To the Holy Spirit and to us. That's always a good pairing. If it's good to the Holy Spirit, we ought to be good with it. Somebody say, amen. Amen. To lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And then, as we looked at in detail, the Jerusalem quadrilateral was issued about the four things that they ought to abstain from. Now, we also need to take note that it isn't that Silas, Paul, and Barnabas were doing what seemed good to them in the sense of whatever they felt like doing, but rather they were doing what seemed good to the Holy Spirit because he was driving the bus, so to speak, and behind the scenes of all that was encountering or being encountered. Now, of the entourage from Jerusalem, it seemed good that Silas stay behind and two others thought the same thing and remain in Antioch. Now, it's interesting that two of the three were those who the contention would arise of was so sharp they separated themselves from one another. And the third, who it seemed good to, to stay in Antioch, was the one who was going to step in where the position had been vacated, or I should say the opportunity had opened up. Now, Paul going with Silas, or choosing Silas, wasn't just a matter of convenience because he happened to be in town. The Holy Spirit was directing traffic behind the scenes all along. And for reasons unknown to Silas at the moment, it seemed good to him to stay behind in the same city as Paul and Barnabas. Now, here's something just as a point of observation we need to glean concerning the disputes that arise within the church. And it's just this. Listen, human disputes cannot diminish divine providence. Human disputes cannot diminish divine Providence. Now, the issue is really this. It's not that, you know, God was seated on the throne. And he said, oh, gosh, what am I going to do now? Paul and Barnabas got in a fight. Oh, man. Galatia, nobody else is going to hear the gospel because these two guys couldn't get along. No, God already had a plan. He was already at work. He already had Silas waiting in the wings. He was already prepared. He was already a preacher. He was good to go, so to speak. And it seemed good to him to be in the place that the Spirit inspired him to be. Now, let me ask this question. 
Did the Holy Spirit, who is the third member of the triune Godhead, know that Paul and Barnabas were going to have a contention someday, that it was so sharp they would become altogether separate? Did the Holy Spirit already know that? Well, of course he did. Was it a coincidence that it seemed good to Silas to stick around in Antioch? Of course it wasn't. God had a work to do, and it was going to get done, and nobody can stop it. But the issue is really this. Are you going to be part of it or not? If somebody bails out, God's going to raise up somebody else, and his work and will is going to be done. Somebody say amen. Now in Acts 13, 1 to 3, we're told that in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, and they were Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Now, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Could it be? that the Holy Spirit called them to a work knowing that there was an end that was going to come to it. And they had gone as far as the pair could go. Now, I think we all understand. I certainly know that it's true in ministry. It's also true in life that we may have thought something was going to be long-term or even permanent, and then boom, everything changes. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You think that things are going to go thus and so, the way it's working right now is just fine, thank you. And then all of a sudden the Lord throws that proverbial curveball at us and things change and they change dramatically. The Holy Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Paul, knowing full well that Paul and Barnabas were going to separate later. And he had Silas ready and waiting at the right place at the right time. Now we also need to note that the Spirit foresaw this knew this when the disputing pair were first called and that they, after their split, were still altogether members of the body of Christ, even though they went their separate ways. So, can there be, between believers, a dispute and yet the work of God continues? Well, of course there are, or it's possible. But someday, listen, here's some good news. When we see Jesus and we're like him, All the disputing is going to come to an end. And we will forever be worshiping the Lord. Somebody say amen. Now look at 36 to 39 as we get into this issue that has caused so much uh, interesting commentary on it. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted, departed from one or parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed where to Cyprus. Now, something we need to address as an aside, so to speak, or this is our commercial break, and we'll get back to our message in a moment. Now, one thing we need to address at the outset is this. Barnabas and Mark, according to Colossians 4.10, were cousins. And John Mark had, for whatever reason, abandoned the work and returned back home to Jerusalem. Now, Acts 13.13 tells us of this event. When Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, John Mark, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, here's what I wanted to mention. Nepotism is one of the great plagues within the church today. God calls men to the ministry, and he doesn't do do so strictly according to bloodlines. Now, there are families who are families of preachers. I was thinking, as uh, many of you I know are praying for Peter John Corson, who has stage four uh, colon cancer, and they haven't given him much more time uh, on the face of this earth. And he has been just a tremendous example of trust through these last days, potentially last days of his life. But here you've got a family of preachers. You've got John Corson, Peter John Corson, and now Ben Corson is out preaching. And that's because God called them, not because John called them. It's because God called them. And anyone who has the same last name and blood flowing through their veins, who are successful in ministry, are always and only successful because God called them to it. And therefore, we have a lot of people today who are appointing family members to positions uh, within the church without the associated calling. Okay, so that's the end of our commercial. Back to our regularly scheduled message this morning. 
Now, this is where many commentators seem to slip from exegesis, interpreting the text as written, to eisegesis, or forcing something into the text, or reading something into the text. And I tell you, with all the commentators I read, there was one statement that was common through almost all of them, and that was that God took one missionary team and used the division to bring about two. Well, there is nothing in the Bible that says that Barnabas and Mark became a missionary team. It says Barnabas went home. He was from Cyprus, and he took John Mark with him. Now, others said, because Paul would later send for John Mark in uh, 2 Timothy 4.11, and even say that Mark is useful to me for ministry, and, and the fact that Mark penned the gospel by his own name, most believe he took dictation from Peter in the writing of it. Some say that Paul realized, you know what, that was a knee-jerk reaction, it was a bad decision, never should have done it, and therefore he sent for Mark, realizing his mistake. Others said both men were wrong and neither would admit it. Now, when you want to admit something, when you're wrong, that's called what? Starts with P, ends with ride. Pride. So basically, the accusation is that Barnabas and Paul were men filled with pride. And we can see that through the text all over because of the way they sacrificed and risked their life for Jesus. Obviously, pride had nothing to do with this. Now, let me just say this. I don't think both men were wrong. I think Barnabas was wrong. And I'll tell you why Barnabas was wrong. And that is because Paul was an apostle and Barnabas was not. And therefore, therefore Paul had apostolic authority and his decision should have been heeded and submitted to by Barnabas. Now, there's evidence to support that. Obviously, in Scripture, Paul is identified as an apostle. But I believe what Barnabas was actually doing is he was battling the same thing many in ministry do today. And that is he was letting family influence ministry decisions. Now, think about it. Barnabas took Mark and went home. And in doing so, he marched right out of the pages of Scripture, never to be heard from or of again. Now, the balance of Acts, the next few chapters, will focus on Paul and Silas. And then the balance is going to focus on Paul's ministry. And then after that, we recognize Paul wrote some 13 epistles. And again, Barnabas went home. Now, Amos 3.3 presents this to us. Can two walk together unless they are what? Agreed. Now, let me ask you something. Is it possible that somewhere on the planet, with the global church of God, with Christians in every country around the world, that there might be some Christian somewhere that you have a personality rub with? Is that possible? I'm going to go beyond possible. It's likely. It's probable. Now, is it possible that there's a Christian somewhere that you don't click with personality-wise? You don't dislike them. You actually love them in the Lord, but you're two different personality types, and they're not someone you would choose to develop a close relationship with outside of the most important relationship, that being the relationship with the Lord that you share, but not because they're bad, just because you don't have anything in common other than the Lord. Is that possible? Well, of course it's possible. Now, if these things are true regarding some doctrinal interpretations, and we don't divide over areas where there is some room for various interpretations, knowing that someday we're all going to know who was right, and it will be the Lord, certainly. It's certainly true of personality clashes. Now, this wasn't the case with Paul and Barnabas. It wasn't a personality rub. It wasn't that they didn't get along. Again, it was a blood matter, and it wasn't the blood of Jesus uh, that overrode this situation, nor Paul's apostolic authority. But I wanted to introduce the thought to you, just so you could recognize, it is possible to be all together, one in Christ, yet separate. Now, Here's our takeaway, and this is about as uh, rubber meets the road as you can get as it pertains to this issue. Practical application coming. Listen, when personal preferences or personalities hinder effective ministry, it's best to serve separately. When personal preferences or personalities hinder effective ministry, it's best to serve separately. Now, there'll be more of this in our final point, but let me say a couple of things here as we continue. As much as the world would love to portray us as mindless robots, Christianity is not a check your individuality or personality at the door when you get saved type of proposition. 
And 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 26 says, But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members, remember this is an illustration, those members of the bodies which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. Paul's talking about modesty covering portions of the body, speaking of unseen ministries within the church. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacked it, lacks it, that there should be no schism. Say no schism. No schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members do what? Rejoice with it. Now, I want you to think about the original 12. The original 12 that Jesus called were referred to as such in that day. The 12. Now, there was great diversity in the midst of the 12. One of them was a devil. And we'll just leave him out of the mix. But... Peter was so outspoken, he often said things he hadn't thought of. His brother Andrew was constantly quietly leading people to Jesus. There was another pair of brothers amongst the twelve that were so boisterous, Jesus nicknamed them Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Thomas, a skeptic, Matthew, an accountant. Even Simon, a zealot, or one we might call a radical, was chosen by Jesus to be amongst the twelve. Now, when two people who are of the one body can't seem to work together, it's best to serve separately because it's the work that's important, not the persons or personalities doing it. It's proclaiming Christ and him crucified that is more important above all. Now, we need to be cautious in approaching this issue Because, listen, when serving separate, the command to love one another still stands. When serving separately because of personality rubs or particular taste and styles of ministry or whatever causes a separation, we still need to love one another. Listen, here we go. Here's a bell ringer. We don't serve separately, then talk about one another unceasingly. We don't serve separately and then talk about one another unceasingly. And I can't think of a better example for us than the pastor-parishioner relationship. Now, Terry and I, because we are, well, let's just say strong-willed. We are both of an ethnic background that makes us kind of stubborn people. And she's far more stubborn. I mean, uh, (laughs) we are equals. God knew what he was doing to bring us together. He brought two strong personalities together. Now, therefore, personally, Terry and I tend to lean towards the power preacher. We don't mind if somebody slams their hand on the pulpit once in a while and yells some. That doesn't bother me at all. Maybe that's why I'm so loud when I teach. I don't know. But others may prefer someone who sits on a stool and chats with the room about the Bible while others may prefer someone who stands in a row behind a huge lectern and conducts what is called high church. Listen, it's okay to have a personal preference in those areas. It's okay to have a particular method that you prefer and learn through, as long as all those methods share one common feature. And here's that feature, 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 17 Paul tells Timothy, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Here's a single criteria among all types of churches, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, whether you rightly divide it loud or whether you rightly divide it calmly, or whether you rightly divide it behind a massive lectern in a robe. Rightly dividing is the critical issue. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. And then Paul says, Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. Here's a pair of examples you will know. Now, some love the intellectual style 
of Chuck Missler. Chuck Missler was awesome, wasn't he? Don't you love listening to somebody sometimes where you have no idea what they're talking about? It just sounds good. (laughs) Some people loved hearing Chuck Missler. Other people preferred the warmth and seasoned wisdom and the golden voice and smile of a man named Chuck Smith. He was the preference of some. But let me say this. If your pastor is more like Chuck E. Cheese and Chuck Missler or Chuck Smith, you better find a better church that's not entertaining you and rightly dividing the word of truth. Amen? It is rightly dividing the word of truth that matters, not the personality of the pastor or his preaching style. Some are going to like it and some will not just because of personal taste and preference. And listen, it's just amazing some of the things that happen out there when you're kind of uh, doing conferences in other parts of the country or world. There was a lady who came up to me one time and she just had this sweetest look on her face and she came up to me and uh, after I'd spoken at a conference and she said, I have a question. I said, yeah, what is it? She said, who is gosh? I said, gosh, what do you mean who is gosh? Well, you use the expression, oh my gosh, which of course we know is a replacement for Oh, my G-O-D. So I'm wondering, who is gosh? I said, it's a figure of speech. No, it's not. And then all of a sudden, this sweet-looking lady grew horns and floated off the ground. And she said, listen, if you're going to use that kind of language, I'm not coming back this afternoon. So I said, gosh, I'm sorry. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. I didn't say that, but I was thunking it. No. Paul paired up with Silas and turned the world upside down. Barnabas took John Mark and went home. But I don't think that he was inactive, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But the fact is the two men could not minister effectively together any longer. And the Holy Spirit knew that, and he was already at work for the replacement after the split. Now, here's the important part of this. What we don't read of is Paul talking smack on Barnabas after they separated Even though Barnabas was uncharacteristically stubborn in his decision, Paul just kept serving the Lord and walking in his own calling. Now, I cannot, nor can any other Bible commentator or one who teaches the word of God, say Barnabas and Mark formed a second ministry or missionary team. But remember, Barnabas, which was actually a nickname for a man whose actual name was Joseph's, was always encouraging other people. What is likely what happened is he took John Mark to home to Cyprus, Barnabas' home, and he discipled him, which led him to the place where Paul would later say, he's not useless in ministry, he is now useful for ministry, and he would send for him. That's speculation, of course, as is all the others, but it seems as though it's a possibility. Now, let's wrap our time up, if you're still here, with verses 40 and 41. But... Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, one of the misconceptions that is common in the church today is that when you're in the perfect will of God, everything makes sense, is easy and obvious. Nothing could be further than the truth. The fact is, I was thinking back to even when we left our church home and ministry of 11 years, it was hard. It was confusing. It was painful. It made no sense whatsoever. But I was even thinking this morning that we actually shouldn't have stayed 11 years because God was calling us out after 10 years and he had to get out the holy two by four and apply it to my noggin to get me headed in the right direction. Does anybody know what I'm talking about there? But God knew that in advance. And listen, he was already working out everything that was going to bring about the birth of CCT. Now, After the sharp contention of the missionary pair, Barnabas took John Mark home with them to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas, departed, and the pair were entrusted to, that's the meaning of the phrase commended or the word commended, by the brethren to the grace of God. In other words, they were blessed as Paul and Barnabas were when the church sent them out. Now, as Barnabas sailed to Cyprus, Paul began traveling around to the northeast into the Mediterranean, the Gulf of Issus, and on through the Syrian gates, which was was a uh, narrow road between steep rocks in the ocean and in the inland, passed through uh, Mount Taurus and finally reached 
the churches at Galatia, where he and Silas would meet a young man that Paul would later refer to as his son in the faith, a man named Timothy. Now, back to the all things thing from Romans 8.28 for a moment. We need to recognize that it is often through our difficulties and failures that God makes us into more effective ministers. It is often through the things that we could have done better or learned from or approached differently that allows us the opportunity when faced with the same situation again to react more appropriately. Now, Silas brought to Paul's ministry some ingredients that Barnabas did not have. Silas was a Roman citizen, according to Acts 16, uh, 37. Verse 32 of our text told us he was a prophet. No such language is associated with Barnabas. And later we're going to find that he actually served as Paul's stenographer. And you'll see evidence of that in 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 2 Thessalonians 1.1. Now, while a sharp contention separated a great ministry team and Barnabas was a great loss, Silas was a great gain. We might even go as far to say that Silas was more appropriately suited for the ministry that was going to come. So... Silas was inserted into this broken situation. Now, I've told young pastors over the years who have had the opportunity to talk to that there is a couple of things they need to be ready for when planning a church. And the first is, and always is, that God is going to send you some Barnabases to get the work started, to encourage you. Now, they may not commit long term, and it might seem good to them at some point that they're to move on and go somewhere else where a new work is starting. But just be ready for that. And it seems good to them to be an encourager to those starting a new work or struggling. But it may just be their calling, and their calling may be exactly that, as Barnabas was labeled a son of encouragement. Now, the journey of the two men would take them through a narrow and dangerous pass in the Taurus Mountains known as the Cilician Gates. It was an area prone because of the vulnerability of the travelers to robbers, which some believe is the reason that John Mark went back to Jerusalem when they arrived at this point that they were going to pass back through when they were visiting the churches that they had established. Could be that Mark simply said, I didn't sign up for this. Didn't plan on risking my life. And most believe that John Mark at the time of the first trip was somewhere between 16 and 21 years old. So it may have been an intimidating situation. But the two men, Paul and Silas, had a Holy Spirit-inspired desire to visit the churches that were born out of the previous missionary efforts to see how they were doing and to strengthen them. Now, the word strengthening in verse 41 means to support further. It can mean to consolidate, which means to make stronger. We find the same Greek word used later in chapter 18, where in 22 to 23, we're told that when they had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch and spent some time there. And he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now, what we need to glean here is that the separation or Sharp contentions that happen usually weaken a church and ruin relationships. Yet Paul and Silas, after this contention that caused a separation, are strengthening churches and not weakened themselves. Now, let me insert a bit of a caveat here and we'll make our closing point. In 1 John 2, 18 to 23, you guys still here? 18 to 23, little children, it is the last hour. And you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. Remember, Antichrist means instead of or against or opposed to Christ. Now, by this, we know that it is the last hour. I submit to you, if it was the last hour when John wrote this almost 2,000 years ago, we're in the last seconds before Jesus comes for his church. Somebody say... Now, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest or be exposed that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. Pointing back to what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. He will teach you all things in John 14. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And that no lie is of the truth. Who's a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Now listen, 
This is important because unity at any price is not what we're talking about. We don't just turn a blind eye to all kinds of aberrant teachings and errant doctrines. There is a place and a time to rightly divide as we covered earlier in chapter 15. There are those today who label themselves as a church, who associate themselves with the name Jesus, yet they deny the deity of Christ. They deny the triune nature of the Godhead, proving they are anti-Christ or actually against Christ. And not only do they not have the Son, they don't have the Father either. And separating from them is a different matter altogether, and it's not our topic this morning. Now, I say this because there are many in the church today who deny the importance of doctrine and have that let's all get along, we're all children of God kind of mentality, even though they don't believe the things that the Bible teaches. Now, here's our final takeaway this morning to consider about being all together separate. Listen, personal disputes must never distract from personal ministry. Personal disputes must never distract from personal ministry. Now, I have read of, talked to, heard about countless people in the church today who have said the actions of one believer is their reason for not attending or participating in church anymore. Now, there's a quote from Dancing with the Scars that has made its way around uh, the internet some, and it's just this. Listen, don't blame God for what people have done. Don't blame God for what people have done. And let me give you an example where we need to stay focused on what God has called us to do. In John 21, 20 to 23, then Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. Who is the disciple that Jesus loved? Who self-describes himself like that? John the Beloved. Who also leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, seeing John, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, now there was a rumor that John was going to live until Jesus returned. Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what's that to you? You follow what? Follow me. You follow me. In other words, Peter, mind your own business about John. My plan for him is my plan for him. And if I remain that, uh, that he, if I will that he remain till I come, what's that to you? Follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say that to him, that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Now, stick your toes out this morning. I want to step on them for a moment. You ready? Coming in close. This is going to be tight for some. Here we go. Say, I'm ready. (laughs) Was that a question or was that a statement of fact? I think Jesus would say to some today, who are you to say that certain styles of worship, music, isn't worship? Who are you to say that a certain style of preaching isn't authentic? Who are you to say that you won't go to church or serve in ministry because of something that I had nothing to do with? Now listen, saints, we're all together the body of Christ. And we have separate personalities and giftings and different things seem good to one person than they do to another. Now, that doesn't mean we accept all teachings and practices, but it does mean we do not let our personal and personality differences distract us from ministry. Barnabas said, give John Mark another chance. Paul seemed to say, you know what? This isn't the place to be learning about ministry. This is a place for those who are mature, who can strengthen others, not need strengthening themselves. Now, listen, we're not a bunch of robots. We are of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And among the members of the church, global, among the members of this church, even though we don't have a formal membership, there's some type A's. Hello, type A's, you're here. There's some type A's. You know what? There's some passive aggressives. There's some introverts. There's some extroverts. There's some hymn lovers and contemporary Christian worship lovers. And there's even some sandpaper saints. But remember, 
Those who encounter sandpaper are smoother after the encounter. And therefore, there's room for all of us in the body of Christ and our personalities and even our quirks. Somebody say amen. Now, the fact is we're supposed to be Jesus lovers. We're supposed to be disciple lovers. And we're not ever to let our ministry philosophies or style divide us from those who are rightly dividing the word of truth. There are times where sharp contentions will arise between believers and effective ministry must always be considered when they do. Now, you might be visiting and you don't like my preaching style. Well, get in line. There's a long line of folks like that. Listen, what you don't have the right to say to me or anybody else who's rightly dividing the word of truth is that you're not called because I don't like your style. The fact is, look at the 12 again. All kinds of personality types, bold, impetuous, outspoken, analytical, anal, we might even say, which would be a requirement for Matthew as an accountant, tax collector, somebody that's overzealous like Simeon or Simon. But the fact is, listen, we can be all together, and there may come a time where, for the sake of effective ministry, We don't allow somebody else's personality or personality type to stop us from serving. We just might have to serve separately. Because the fact is, the body of Christ is made up of all kinds of people. And there's room for us in the kingdom of God. Somebody say amen. Amen. We cannot allow our differences and distinctive personal traits to get us off course. Jesus is coming soon. So let's not be bickering over nonsense when the trumpet sounds and we're called to meet him in the air in a moment and twinkling of an eye. Let's be about the Father's business. Let's be serious about it. Let's recognize we're all part of the body of Christ and we're of all different personalities, some more aggressive than others, some louder than others, some more churchy, some would say, than others, some more ethereal than others. But listen, if the word is being rightly divided, you and I are not to be critics of a style over substance. Somebody say amen. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to examine something that you inserted in Scripture for our learning and for our betterment, for our equipping for the work of ministry. And thank you, Lord, that there's room for the boisterous and room for those who speak softly. Because whether the voice is loud or whether the voice is soft, the authority is in the rightly divided word. So help us, Lord, to battle any hypercriticalness in us all. Help us, Lord, to refrain from rejecting someone as a valid minister because the style is different and the substance the same. Help us, Lord, not to criticize or demonize styles of worship where the music genre is accompanied with words straight out of your scripture. Help us, Lord, to love one another that the world may know we are your disciples, even when our personalities may rub each other the wrong way. Help us to never allow any of those things to keep us from serving you or isolating ourselves from the body of Christ. We thank you for our text and our time this morning. We pray these things in and through the name above all others, the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.